seems as though uh, every four years we are told that we've come to the most important election of our lives. Um, Theologically, I could argue with that statement. Ephesians chapter 1 has a few things to say about that, for example. Um, And in fact, that kind of hyperbole, um, it always reminds me of the storm of the century, which also seems to happen about once every three or four years. But stop and consider for just a moment, um, what is the most important day of your life? The day of your birth is probably high up on that list. Is it your wedding day? The day that your child was born? Um, Is there another significant day in your life? Maybe the day that someone you loved died. Maybe the most important day of your life is when you were converted to Christianity, when you went from death to life. And yet, while some of us do, many of us in this room don't actually know what day that was. We didn't necessarily have a dramatic conversion experience. We just simply came to realize that the things that the preacher or maybe our parents had been telling us about Jesus were actually true. That Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so now now we look throughout history and we ask a similar question. What's the most important day of all? And as Christians, we obviously have a unique answer to that question. Our increasingly secular society, the world, might look at certain political events or they might look at certain natural disasters as the most important, but we know that it has to do with the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. I don't want to quibble about which one of those days is the most important, because in actuality, they really can't be separated. The ascension is important, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The ascension as a moment in history is one of the most important days in the history of mankind. The resurrection is important because as Paul said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Well, today we're going to see why his death or why his crucifixion, the day of his crucifixion, is so important. So John chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 16 to 27. This is where we left off last week. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16, says this. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. 
Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Let's stop again and pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these things. Help us not just to understand it mentally, though, intellectually, but that we would believe these things, that we would believe them truly, that Jesus truly is the true king, the true priest, and the true son. Give us ears to hear this morning, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in order to get the full picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I would encourage you this week to read um, Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, and Luke chapter 23, in addition to these verses that we're going to look at today. Each of those accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then, of course, John, um, each of them give their own details, their own perspective, and when read together, they really fill out the whole picture of the agony that Jesus went through as he died on the cross. And if you're familiar with the story of the cross, you probably noticed that John appears to leave out some pretty important details. Yet he includes some kind of um, odd facts that, that might not seem all that important at first glance. Like the fact, for example, that the inscription is written in three different languages. Or, or the description of the soldiers and his clothes, this, this seamless tunic that he was wearing. But each of these details, each of the details that John lays out here in these verses are of vital importance to our understanding of who Jesus Christ really is and what he is doing as he is being put to death here on the cross. And so our work today is to pay attention to the details that John gives us and to hear the message that the Holy Spirit is teaching us, namely, that this crucified Jesus is the true king, the true priest, and the true son. We live in a world um, that is changing the meaning of the word truth. Have you noticed that? Oprah really likes to do that. 
Change the meaning of the word truth, as in each of you can have a truth that is individual to you. And they might even contradict each other, but it's your truth, so it's okay, the world tells us. But Jesus had said when he first began teaching this the night before, when they first sat down after dinner and he began to teach them, early in John chapter 14, verse 6, he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And so today we find ourselves at the cross, and we're going to see that he is, in fact, the truth. As I said, he is actually the true king, the true priest, and the true son. I touched a bit last week on verse 16, but let's pick it up here. Let me read verse 16 again. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. In John's writing, this is, it's just sort of a simple transitional verse from one scene to another. The courtroom drama has ended, and now he's being taken out to be executed. In fact, some of your Bibles, um, the editors in putting together your Bible may have put a heading in the middle of the verse. Um, In mine, it says the crucifixion. Before it says the words, so they took Jesus. But don't miss the importance of this verse, verse 16. In fact, picture this, you've probably seen trials. Think of a trial on TV, Um, Law and Order, or Perry Mason, or Matlock. Not the A-team, though, that's different. The drama in those trials, in those courtroom TV shows, right, The drama is almost always either in the the explosive testimony or when the verdict is read by the jury foreman. It's when the gavel is struck because the the judge issues the sentence or, or maybe the dramatic climax of that is with the actual execution. But seldom is the focus the moment that the accused or now the convicted is just simply led from the scene, led from the courtroom. Yet in Jesus' case, this is what we're seeing. So Pilate, the judge, has declared him innocent three times, yet he delivers him over to be crucified. This is where, in in the drama of a courtroom, his family would protest. They would demand justice. If this were in an American courtroom, there would be cries and shouts at this moment. He's been declared innocent, and yet they're taking him out to be executed. John records nothing like those dramatic moments that we would imagine. In fact, verse 16, it almost reads like a livestock auction. Isaiah 53 had prophesied this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. So they took Jesus, verse 16 says. They, that's the Roman soldiers. 
Even though Pilate had said to the Jews, back up, I think it's in verse 6 there, he told them to take him yourselves and crucify him. They all knew, he knew, the the Jewish leadership knew, and, and the Roman soldiers knew that that wasn't going to happen. That's a job for the Roman soldiers. But Pilate is eager to wash his hands of the matter and to shift all of the blame to Jesus' enemies, to the the Jewish leadership. And so at this point, with Jesus back in the custody of those who had already flogged him once, already scourged him, as some versions say, they'd already whipped him once, now he's back in their custody, and at this point he was probably flogged again. But this time he was probably beaten to within an inch of his life, as was the Roman custom. In fact, many who were sentenced to crucifixion, and they were flogged first, typically, many of them died from their injuries before they ever went to the cross. But again, John John skips almost all of those details, and he brings us right to the place of the skull. Verse 17 and 18, the place of the skull. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. One of the interesting points that we can see in John's account is that when he does actually get into some of the details, it's not the gory details. And there are gory details, by the way. You can read about them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John doesn't really get into that. We know from historical sources that Roman crucifixion was a terrible thing to witness. William Barclay, who was a Scottish pastor and author um, way back in the 1900s, he wrote this in a commentary. He said, "The, the Romans themselves regarded it with a shudder of horror that they did this. Cicero declared that it was a despicable death, crucifixion. Because of this, no Roman citizen could be crucified for any crime, no matter how heinous. Roman citizens in the Roman Empire had a higher status than everybody else. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was reserved for the the enemies of the state, for rebels, and for slaves. Crucifixion was designed to maximize not only the physical anguish of the person being crucified, but also their shame. And I I know we don't really like to think about this, but typically the condemned was stripped completely bare and nailed to the cross. Naked and shamed, he was put on the cross. I mentioned a minute ago that sometime between verse 16 and 17... Jesus was probably flogged, beaten, scourged, whipped again. This time it was much more brutal. And this second flogging is very likely the reason that Jesus, that we know from the other accounts, was was unable to complete the task of carrying the cross. He couldn't carry it himself through the streets. He needed the help of a man named Joseph of Arimathea who was forced to, to do it for him. But again, John here doesn't give us those details. You need to read about them in those other Gospels. Instead, John focuses on two things. So look at what he focuses on. He emphasizes bearing his own cross. Why do you think John says it like this? 
bearing his own cross. It's almost at, at first glance, it almost looks like it contradicts those other passages that I just mentioned. But we know that that can't be true. So I want to analyze this just for a second. The first thing that we should note is that Jesus did carry his own cross. And this was probably the, the cross member of the cross was the Roman custom. He probably carried it, we know that he carried it, at least from Pilate's headquarters, where the trial was, as far as the gate of the city, where the soldiers then forced that man Joseph to carry it for him the rest of the way to Golgotha, to the place of a skull. But secondly, and this is what John is doing for us here, is he's painting us a picture. He wants us to think of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, not just merely in human terms, but in cosmic terms. This is bigger. He wants us to see Jesus' death in terms of his suffering, his struggle, his weakness, and his anguish, but he wants us to see that he is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. John's not contradicting the other gospel writers. In fact, I, I believe John wrote his gospel after the other three had already written theirs, and so he very well could be implying that if you want more of the gory details, go read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But they wrote for different purposes than John wrote. John is emphasizing Christ's passion, that he is bearing his own cross, that he's taking up his own cross and leading the way. In fact, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Right after Peter's confession, where he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus responded with a promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But then he also makes this declaration right after that interchange. It's Matthew 16, verses 24 to 26. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is how Jesus is the way. By bearing his own cross to the place called Golgotha, by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, carrying it to the place of a skull. This is really the other thing that John focuses here on in, instead of the gory details. He focuses on the place. In fact, it says, that he, it says he went out to this place. The people of Israel, for centuries, had sent the scapegoat out into the wilderness. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 9 and 10 and, and here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote from the New American Standard Version, which is a little clearer than I usually use the English Standard. It says this, Then Aaron, this is Israel's first high priest, shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. The sins of the people were to be sent outside of the camp that they might be that the people themselves might even be purified. 
But when this was to be done on the Day of Atonement, it didn't end with the scapegoat being sent out into the wilderness. See, the remains of the sin offerings, the sacrifices, that there was a bull and a, and a goat that were sacrificed as a, as a payment for sin, the remains of those sin offerings were also carried outside the camp. So Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, just a few verses later, it says this, And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Any trace of their sin was to be removed from them. Because as the saying goes, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Any trace of their sin needed to be removed. Listen now to how the author, the preacher of Hebrews, puts it when he says in Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13, he says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin upon himself, bore his own cross, and went out, went out of the camp, went out of the city to the place of death. See, not only was the sin to be removed from God's people, but the result is that we are to live holy and upright lives. Yet, the law can no longer be our destination. The people of Israel had to go back and offer sacrifices year after year after year as a payment for sins, but Jesus does this once and for all. Hebrews there is telling God's people that they're to go outside of the religious rituals of Judaism in order to benefit from Christ's sacrifice. We need to look to Jesus, he says. Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Christians need to continue to go to Christ's cross. We need to do this week after week after week after week. These are the ordinary means of grace. We need to go to the place of death. We need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, as Hebrews 12 says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. We need to look to Jesus on the cross. Week after week after week. This is why I'm convinced that we need to come to the table as often as we can. This is why the, the ministry, the church ministry, must be a ministry of word and sacrament. Because we need to be pushed to the cross. The table is an ugly memorial. This is my body. The cup is a new, the new covenant in my blood. Christians have been accused of cannibalism because of this. It's ugly, but it's also a beautiful sacrament. 
Christ brings us to the place of the skull, to the place of death, but not to abandon us there. Rather, he brings us there to defeat the last enemy. As it says in 1 Corinthians, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And again, Paul will say a little bit later, the sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is here at the cross, as verse 18 tells us, that Jesus is central. But not only are we called to look upon the suffering Lamb of God, we're also called to look upon this inscription that Pilate puts probably above his head and come to our own conclusions. Is he the true king? The true king. Verse 19 Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate, of course, is still mocking them. He's still mocking the Jews. These were the, this was the charge against Jesus. He was king of the Jews. And he's written this so that all could understand. He wrote it in Aramaic so that the Jews and all those living in Palestine could understand the charge. He's written it in Latin for the Romans, particularly the the soldiers and other Roman officials, government officials who are there. He's written it in Greek for anybody else, like foreigners and sojourners in the land. Greek is the trade language. Everybody understood Greek. He's written it for everybody to understand this is the king of the Jews. So while Pilate's actions, they're meant to serve as a a warning to any other so-called messiahs, any other rabble-rousers, he also continues to kind of metaphorically poke his finger in the eyes of Jesus at the same time. King of the Jews, huh? Let's tell everybody. This is the king of the Jews. But in affixing this inscription, Pilate's also, he's, he's unwittingly serving God's ends as well. Jesus Christ is the king of the Jews. The cross is his means of exaltation and the very, the very manner of his glorification. Jesus himself had already taught this all the way back in John chapter 12. And, and he, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then a little bit later, he said this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And here he is, lifted up. And here he is as the true king lifted up. And it's at the cross that he is hailed by all, in all the languages. See, Jesus is not merely, though, king of the Jews. He's also king of the Romans. He's also king of the Greeks as well. In fact, he truly is king of kings. And God even uses Pilate's stubbornness here. Verse 22, Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. 
his statement, the inscription, it can't be altered. Christ's righteousness, his glory, his dominion can never be annulled. Even by the indignant unbelief of rebellious mankind, Jesus is the true king. Here we see the, really the establishment of the, of the true cause of his crucifixion, of his death. Jesus died because he was king of God's covenant nation. And it was only through his death that his beloved people could be forgiven and enter into eternal life. As he was about to wash his disciples' feet, John had said this early in John chapter 13. He says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Charles Spurgeon laid out an appeal for us when he said this. He claims to be king, so stand at the foot of the cross, I pray you, and acknowledge his claim. If you would have Jesus to be your savior, you must have him as your king. You must submit to his government, for he claims the right to rule over all who acknowledge him to be Jesus. More than that, he claims to rule all mankind, for all power is given unto him in heaven and in earth, and we are bidden to proclaim his kingdom throughout the whole world and to say to all men, Jesus of Nazareth is your king. Bow down before him. You kings, bow down before him, for he is king of kings. You lords and nobles, bow down before him, for he is lord of lords. And all you sons and daughters of men, bow at his feet, for he must reign. And even if you're his enemies, he must reign over you. In spite of all your enmity and opposition, you must be brought to lie at his feet. The claims of Christ, therefore, were published even from the tree on which he died. So do not resist them, but willingly yield yourselves up to Jesus now and let him be king to you henceforth and forever. Jesus is the true king. But not only is he the true king, he's also the true priest. The true priest. Look at verses 23 and 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. The background to this is pretty simple. Um, the spoils of the execution were typically divided among the executioners. And there are four men there crucifying him. And so John directs us now with this to look not above his head, but now to look at the ground beneath his feet. Look at his final earthly possessions, even the clothes off his back. But it's surprising, I think, that John focuses on this Pretty minor detail, instead of on other aspects of his suffering. And yet John is very specific here. And his specificity suggests that this is important, especially, especially his description of Jesus' tunic. Clothing is important in John's gospel. 
Um, think, of, think of Lazarus' grave clothes. Think of the towel, the servant, the slave's towel that Jesus wrapped around himself when he went down and started washing his disciples' feet. Think of the purple robe even just earlier uh, that, the, that the soldiers wrapped around him and, and mocked him with. All of these things, all of those pieces of clothing indicate something, right? So the same is true for this tunic. Some have said, maybe you've heard this before, some have said that the seamless or unterrible nature of this tunic is, is a reference to the unterrible unity of the church. Or, or it is even, some others have said, it is his self-giving or self-emptyingness of the son. He, he even gives his enemies the clothes off his own back. But there's actually more than this here. Because John is purposefully using the language of the Old Testament descriptions of the robes of the priests. God instructs the priests in Exodus chapter 28, verses 31 and 32. This is the instruction. You shall make the robe of, an ephod, of the ephod all of blue. It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening, like the opening in a garment, so that it may not tear. And then in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, the law says this, The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. This entire scene depicts Jesus in his humiliation. Yet at the same time, we see not only his kingly authority, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But we're also seeing his work as the high priest, even down to the clothes that he wears. He is offering up himself as a sacrifice. And the soldiers simply do what God has purposed long ago for them to do. The garments of the priest, um, who is the chief priest among brothers, are not to be torn, as the law said, and so they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's a quote from Psalm 22. Do you remember the first verse of Psalm 22? It says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These things are not coincidental. Jesus quotes this psalm on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in one more shift, now we look from in, down to the front of the, in front of the crucified king, from the ground to the people around him. And here we see those who are standing in front of this crucified Christ. We really are seeing the true son, the true family, the true son, verses 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Four women, his mother, his aunt, Mary, the wife of Clopas, who we think was his, well, 
I guess, stepfather, Joseph's brother's wife. Clopas was Joseph's brother, so probably another aunt. And Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene would go on to be an early disciple and probably even the first to believe that he had risen from the dead. Do you know why John names these four women right here? Probably because these are among the first members of the newly covenanted family of God. See, it's his, it's his dying words that we need to focus on here. He's not simply asking John to, to take care of his mother when he is gone. Mary actually has other children, including James and Jude, two other sons who had gone to be leaders in the early church. Certainly they could have taken care of their mother. And what Jesus is doing is linking them together in the family of God here. John is specifically referred to as his beloved disciple, one who had not abandoned him as all of the others had when the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. Peter stayed with John for a little while, but then he denied Christ and left in tears. But John is still there. This is the very beginnings of God's new covenant people. This is the very beginnings of the church. Now the other disciples will repent. They will, they will return to him when they hear the news from Mary Magdalene, by the way. And we're going to see them assemble with him following the resurrection. They're going to assemble again in Acts following the ascension. But this family statement here, behold, woman, behold your son, behold your mother, this statement here makes a fundamental shift in the family of God. The cross declares Jesus is the unique son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and it reestablishes the disciples through his own blood as a newly created family. See, up until now, John chapter 18 and 19, this whole scene of his trials and, and so far of all that we've read in these last couple chapters, this has been about John chapter 1 verse 11. Do you remember that verse? He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's what we've seen all through John's gospel, and especially in John 18 and 19. They do not receive him. In fact, they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, crucify him. But now, beginning here, we're starting to see John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 come to pass. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In the throes of agony, on the cross, Jesus looked at his own mother. He looked at his beloved disciple, and he gave them the right to become children of God. These are the things that we proclaim. These are the things that we believe. And when we look to Jesus, when we believe in him, he gives us the right to be in his family. He gives us the right to become children of God. Let's pray. Father, you have sent Jesus because you loved us. You have sent Jesus who was perfectly obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. That in Christ, we might be saved. That in his exaltation, as he is lifted up and we look to him, he is highly exalted. That you have given him the name that is above every name. A name for which every person on earth and under the earth would proclaim that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Lord, remind us of your goodness. Remind us of this forgiveness that we have by calling upon the name of Christ, that you have given us the right to be called children of God. Whoever would call upon you. Father, we need to remember the cross regularly. We need to remember that that sin has been taken from us. It's been taken outside of the camp. It has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That we are no longer slaves to our sin. That because of Jesus, we've been given his righteousness. And so, Father, we come to the table even today proclaiming his death. Proclaiming that you have made us clean. You have washed us in the blood of the Lamb. And so, Father, today we come to you. We ask that you would be glorified. We ask that you would give us clean hearts, that you would renew a right spirit within us, that we might continue to run to you for salvation, for restoration, for cleansing, that we might be able to come to your throne to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.